Now hear a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. He was successful and lived in the household of his Egyptian master. His master observed that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he was doing successful. So Joseph found favor in, the sight, in his sight and became his personal attendant. Potiphar appointed Joseph overseer of his household and put him in charge of everything he owned. From the time Potiphar appointed him over his household and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that he had, both in his house and in his fields. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. He gave no thought to anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and good-looking. Soon after these things, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused, saying to his master's wife, Look, my master does not give any thought to his household with me here, and everything that he owns he has put into my care. There is no one greater in this household than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do such an evil, great evil and sin against God? Even though she continued to speak to Joseph day after day, he did not respond to her invitation to go to bed with her. One day he went into the house to do his work when none of the household servants were there in the house. She grabbed him by his outer garment saying, come to bed with me. But he left his outer garment in her hand and ran outside. When he saw that he had when she saw that he had left his outer garment in her hand and had run outside, she called for her household servants and said to them, See, my husband brought in a Hebrew man to us to humiliate us. He tried to go to bed with me, but I screamed loudly. When he heard me raise my voice and scream, he left his outer garment beside me and ran outside. So she laid his outer garment beside her until his master came home. This is what she said to him, that the Hebrew slave you brought to us tried to humiliate me. But when I raised my voice and screamed, he left his outer garment and ran outside. When his master heard his, voice, his wife say, this is the way your slave treated me, he became furious. Joseph's master took him and threw him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him kindness. He granted him favor in the sight of the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners under Joseph's care. He was in charge of whatever they were doing. The warden did not concern himself with anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him and whatever he was doing, the Lord was making successful. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, please speak to us about your word. Lord, your word is good. It is true. It's challenging, it's beautiful, and I pray that you would help us to hear what you are saying to us in this story. Help us to see what you're showing us in this story. Help us to believe what you're doing in this story and who you are, both in this story and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, this week, the, uh, the, the Thursday morning guys, who you know I refer to often, we were discussing this passage. Guys, you're all welcome to be part of the Thursday morning guys. That is not a multi-gender craft crew. It is <laughs> just for the guys. 
Um, but anyway, um, and as we were talking about this, those of us who grew up in church, uh, we recognized that uh, most, for whatever reason, as I was just saying, kids get taught this story. Uh, it's fairly common uh, that somewhere in Sunday school or growing up, you learn this story. And the reason that that sort of surprises me is because it's kind of like Potiphar's wife kind of wants to turn her life into a steamy romance novel with the good looking servant boy. And, uh, you know, and so there's some, there's a bit of scandal. It's a little edgy. And yet, here you go, kids. This is a good story. But um, uh, so at, what we discovered is that based on our, our age, our generation, we learned this story in different ways. Uh, so the boomers among us uh, learned this story as uh, an example of a guy who who just knows right from wrong. And, and he, he sticks to what's right, even when it is difficult. Uh, you know, I was reflecting on that. This is, you know, the, the children of, you know, the World War II generation and standing up to the great global evil of Hitler or whatever. And so teach, teach your kids, do the right thing, even when it's really hard. Uh, my generation uh, learned this story as how to resist sexual temptation. And so uh, this was a great story to give to the youth group before you give out the promised rings and, and uh, you know, and make the purity pledge and all of that stuff because Joseph resists temptation. Um, those, are, those are interesting lessons. Of course, Joseph uh, does resist temptation. He does stick to what's right. But what is, the, what is the passage trying to tell the first people who heard it, the Israelites in the wilderness? What is it trying? And, and once we hear what it's trying to tell them, what, what is it trying to tell us? And some clues, some things that we can look at are, are ideas that get repeated in this passage. And there's one idea that gets repeated in this passage um, in, a, in a shocking amount because it has been so quiet for most of Genesis. And that is this passage overtly tells us that the Lord is with Joseph. So many of the stories you have to, you have to infer that God is with the characters. You know, he, he shows up to Jacob in dreams or whatever. But here, Joseph sold into slavery down in Egypt, you know, then, th then you know, framed and thrown into prison. And no matter where he goes, no matter his circumstance, the Lord is with him. We just sang this famous old hymn, It Is Well. Uh, this, I love the story of the writing of that hymn. You, maybe you know it. It's the author's Horatio Spafford. And, and uh, his, his family had died very tragically. I won't tell the whole story. Uh, in fact, some of them were lost at sea. And he then was at sea himself uh, looking you know, out at the ocean. And rather than being uh, totally crushed in his sorrow, he pens this song. It's remarkable. What is not often remembered about Horatio Spafford is that he then went back to his church community in the States, and, um, and he went through another major crisis. I think it was a fire that burned, you know, destroyed everything that he owned, and he continued to hold on to this this belief, it's well with my soul. The Lord is with me no matter my circumstances. And his church was so disturbed by this because things went so badly for him. They're like, hey, God is like rebuking you or something. 
Uh, that's why all this bad stuff is happening to you, that they actually put him through church discipline, and he ended up having to separate from that church community because they could not grasp that God would stay with us even in slavery in Egypt, even in an Egyptian prison, that God would stay with us. But repeatedly throughout this story, eight times throughout this story, it highlights the Lord is with Joseph. Now, to help us understand how the Israelites needed to hear this story, I'm probably in this sermon going to spend more time on another part of scripture, and then we'll refer back to Joseph. So sorry about that. But as I was studying this, I kept being drawn back to this incredible and devastating and powerful scene that unfolds in the book of Exodus. Of course, Exodus is when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they're hearing, uh, presumably hearing these stories for the first time. And, and there they are in Exodus. Moses has led them to Mount Sinai. They've heard the voice of God. They've seen the pillar of smoke and pillar of fire. Like God is with them. They have big, visible, scary evidence that God is with them. In fact, God is so terrifying with them that they, they say, Moses, like, you go deal like, closely with God and we'll stay at a distance. And so in the book of Exodus, uh, in chapter 24, we get this scene where it's after the Ten Commandments have been given and Moses is going back to meet with God and, and take Take a look at what happens. It says, Moses went up the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord resided on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from within the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in plain view of the people. Moses went into the cloud when he went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So he goes up the mountain. They can see fire and clouds and terror. And, and eventually, maybe they hear a rumbling and Moses goes into the fire. And he's gone. A day passes, two days pass, a week, two weeks. And he's not coming out. If you are down below and you watched all that happen... Presumably, here's what, you, here's what I would think. And probably here's what you would think. Moses dead. Like, he went in the fire and he burned up and he's gone. And our spiritual mystical leader who did all this stuff with his stick to help us get out of Egypt is gone. And now we're out in the wilderness and we got to figure this out. And we we're pretty sure there was a God who helped us do this. I mean, he spoke to us and all that stuff anyway. And so, um, so we got to figure this out on our own. Just before Moses left, he appointed Aaron and another guy to kind of be their leaders, his brother Aaron. And so, um, and so they... They go to Aaron after a long time, and they, they say, Moses has left. We don't know if he's coming back, and we need you to lead us. So make, make a golden calf for us. Now, we hear that and think, they're turning on God so quickly? But in their minds, they've lived their entire lives in Egypt, where people worship the gods represented by statues. And so they want to make this statue that can, you know, Moses is gone. They need a new thing to remind them of God's presence. And so they, they melt all their gold and they, you know, make this golden calf. And ironically, 
God's up on the mountain telling Moses what to tell Aaron about how to lead the people in worship. He's telling them, you know, uh, how to ordain priests and how to set up the tabernacle and how to do sacrifices. And, and he's been focusing on Aaron's job the whole time. And then all of a sudden, God interrupts himself and says, wait a minute, you got to get down there uh, because the people have done a great evil. And, and actually, in fact, um, let's just start there. You, you don't even need to know. Let's just start over. Moses, I got you up here on the mountain. Why don't I just wipe them out? And you can be like the new Adam. We'll start a new chosen people through you. Moses talks God off the ledge in that scene. You know, think about what the neighbors will think, so to speak. And, um, and so uh, he goes down, he, and then Moses sees what they've done. And they're having a worship service in the Egyptian style. It's they're dancing, they're they're doing fertility things <laughs> around the statue. They're partying, and Moses comes and he flips out and he you know he grinds up the statue and it's this big this big terrible uh, to do. And Moses in a huff he smashes the Ten Commandments. He you know he goes he goes back up. He's furious and and God says. They can go up to the land of milk and honey. That's fine. But I'm not going with them. I'm not going with them because I'll kill them if I go with them. And so that starts this conversation between Moses and God that transpires in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And, and, and Moses is pleading on behalf of the people for, their, for God to go with them. He's begging, begging the Lord. Please go with the people. They need your presence. Now, why does he know they need his presence? Perhaps one of the reasons is they have, they have heard this story about Joseph. You see, Joseph, just like them, is sent to Egypt. Just like them, is in slavery in Egypt. Just like them, suffers in Egypt. Just like them, is falsely accused in Egypt. I mean, Joseph goes through their story in Egypt. But the whole time that he's there, he remembers God's presence. The whole time, he's experiencing God's presence. Now, Joseph is, it's, he's, he does seem to get into... Uh, good situations, but we need to remember that, bye Mabel, sweet girl. You guys, I love all the baby cries in this church. It just makes me so happy. Okay, um, so we need to remember that even, even in these situations where it seems like Joseph has gotten a bunch of sort of cred, where he's gotten some some good situations where the people in charge have put him in a good situation. You, you see in the story how quickly he can lose that, right? I mean, he still doesn't have any power. He becomes number two in Potiphar's house, and all it takes is one accusation from Potiphar's wife in front of the servants, and boom, he's out. He's in prison. And then he's in prison, and yeah, he might be in charge of all of the other prisoners, as the book, as the story describes, but still, uh, you know, on on a bad day, the warden of the prison could decide to execute him. Joseph has no power still. He's not like building up his nest egg here. You know, he's, he's not developing. He, he's, not, he's not getting any, um, any security in this situation. He still is completely on the edge, completely vulnerable. 
And yet, the Lord is with him. I think the normal human experience when things go poorly is for us to feel like God's not with us. That's the time that we feel alone, right? That's the time that it feels dark. That's the time it feels like, gosh. And that can happen in all sorts of circumstances. It can happen when relationships fall apart, uh, whatever. But I think one of the worst situations is when your circumstances that are, that are miserable for you are obviously to you your fault. And that's a time where that shame and guilt of I did this and this is happening can make it feel especially dark. I, I was thinking as I was writing this of an experience uh, not too long ago, I wish it was longer, it would feel better, of uh, a time where I was involved in uh, a prank pulled on another friend. And the prank was meant to be um, in, in fun. It was meant to kind of, you know, pull the other friend in, you know, in a little bit, have an inside joke, whatever. Uh, but in the midst of the prank, uh, I was aware of circumstances and the other, the people's lives who the prank was pulled on that it was a, uh, it wasn't a good. It wasn't a good idea to pull the prank in general, even if they would have handled it great. But, um, but it it was really hurtful to them. And immediately as it unfolded, I became aware of the fact that the nature of my relationship with people I really value has changed forever. Or, and it will always have this shadow cast over it. And that moment, that experience for me, when I think about sort of the way my own heart and emotions work, and, and maybe some of you are like this, that was just, a, that was a devastatingly dark time for me. That was, it, it was like, I couldn't believe my own choices and my behavior, especially the stuff that I uniquely knew in that situation. It was my fault, and I couldn't undo it. And if you multiply that feeling by infinity, that's what the Israelites are going through in the book of Genesis. It is their fault. They did something. They maybe thought it would be okay. They clearly forgot the second commandment that said, do not make a thing to represent God. You know, and if you do, it will affect generations later. They forgot that. And God is, in his mercy, Letting them feel the weight of that decision. Letting them feel it. To feel the sting of their choices. This story about Joseph tells us the value of God's presence. That it alters any circumstance. It transforms our experience of slavery and imprisonment. The story of Joseph in Potiphar's house is a glimpse of what is possible when we remember that he's with us. It provides a deep affirmation and a deep security such that Joseph doesn't even defend himself when the accusation comes. He's quiet again. He goes and continues to serve with joy, even in prison. There's this deeper security than any worldly good could provide. 
So it's no wonder if you flash all the way forward into the life of Jesus, that Jesus sends out his followers with, ex with explicit instructions not to bring anything with them. Don't bring extra clothes. Don't bring extra money. Don't bring extra food. Go to a town. You don't know people. The first person who lets you stay with them, stay there. Eat the food that they give you, you know, and just proclaim the kingdom. All he does is give them his authority that they would be agents of kingdom power. Similarly to what Joseph does in Potiphar's house or in prison. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew is the famous Great Commission. Here, here's, uh, maybe here it is. Yes, here it is. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remember, I'm with you. Here's the striking thing about that last command. It's not that we have to do something to get God to be with us. It's that we need to do the work of remembering that he's with us. And this is kind of why I'm focusing on this Exodus passage more so than the Joseph passage. Because Joseph, it's great. It's the story of how the Lord is with him. But we don't get any insight into what Joseph does to cultivate God's presence or remember God's presence. It, he's just enjoying it. He's just basking in it. I mean, it, it doesn't say much about his emotions at all, but he seems to just approach each new challenge with like, okay, here we go. Here we go, Lord. Something about the nature of the Lord's presence requires us to remember he's there. That might make sense to us now. Like, we can't see God. We can't see him. We don't have, you know, fire and smoke on top of a mountain and a booming voice. Oh, wait. But even then, they weren't sure if God was with them anymore. I mean, maybe we take for granted that, uh, that seeing wasn't quite the same as believing what was happening. Even though the fire is burning above, they build their own fire below to make a God. Joseph does demonstrate a courage of conviction that's unparalleled in the Bible up to this point, even among the chosen family. I mean, he things that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them failed in ways that Joseph succeeds. He, he, for, for whatever reason, we don't know why or how, but he remains faithful, even at his own cost, right? The, the, the lesson that you could draw from this passage is uh, don't wear fancy coats. <laughs> After all, Joseph had a fancy coat and his brothers threw him into a pit and then sold him into slavery because they hated him for it. And then Joseph is wearing a fancy coat in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife uses it as evidence against him. Maybe it's just, don't wear fancy coats. <laughs> He's stripped naked and yet God is still with him. This is not, it, this passage is not a lesson in how to do what's right in difficult circumstances. So what does Joseph do to cultivate the Lord's presence? We don't know. 
we, we don't know if he's, if he's, you know, doing daily prayer or fasting regularly or setting up altars. or We, we just don't know what, what he's doing. And that's why I want to look more deeply at this next scene in Exodus. Because after the Lord sort of threatens his absence, Moses pleads with him, and the Lord again promises his presence. Exodus chapter 34 reads as maybe the ultimate how-to manual, not on getting God's presence, but on remembering his presence. And so I, I know it's rare, rare for me to do sort of, you know, three applications at the end of a sermon. Some of you are like, finally. Um, but look at, what, look at what Exodus 34 says. First, we're to receive the covenant, all right? Uh, this, this lesson the, is the fundamental principle of remembering God's presence, we have to remember that God's presence is a gift that he gives by his own promise, no matter what we do. He says, see, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will do wonders such as have not been done in all the earth. All the people among whom you, you will live will see the work of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm doing with you. Obey what I am commanding you this day. He offers himself to be with them and then says, therefore... Obey what I'm commanding you. All right, so remember the covenant. Second, the second way to remember God's presence is to set boundaries. Here's what the Lord says in Exodus. He says, I'm going to drive out the other nations. Be careful not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, for you must not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. We need to acknowledge that we are prone to put ourselves in settings where we will forget the Lord's presence, particularly when we make a deep bond, a deep covenant connection with someone who does not acknowledge the Lord's presence or seeking another God's presence. That's why God is so um, hardcore about telling his people, don't mix your worship with the worship of the people groups around you. Set boundaries. I think, um, you know, the, those among us who have acknowledged addictions probably know the most about boundaries. Like, hey, there's certain settings, certain situations that it's just not wise to go to. It's just not wise to put yourself into those situations. That's the same principle that applies here, that we establish boundaries. The third thing that the Lord gives in Exodus chapter 34 is a set of what I'm calling routines of remembrance. This is really important. We establish routines that help us remember. Um, I'm going to summarize this more than quote what happens in Exodus 34 because he mentions it in several ways throughout this chapter. First, the Lord instructs his people to keep several feasts. Now, what is a feast for the people of Israel? That's a, that's a seasonal holiday. 
That's a time where you set aside a number of days. You set aside your work and you party and you remember what God has done. And there were several feasts that God gave them. Feasts to remember how he delivered them out of Egypt. That's the Feast of Unlimited Bread. Or feasts to remember that he was protecting them in the wilderness. That's the Feast of Weeks. Otherwise, there's the Feast of Booths. There were feasts for the gathering in of the harvest and, and feasts at the end of the harvest season. I mean, the that's really important to our well-being. And church, this is what this is the what the like the traditional Christian calendar offers to us. Did you know that? We set aside seasons throughout the year where we remember key parts of the story. The, the season of Advent prepares our hearts for the coming of the Christ child. The season of Lent prepares our hearts for, uh, for the death and resurrection of Jesus. The season of Pentecost reminds us about the gift of the Holy Spirit. These seasons are times, just like the feast, that we set aside to say, what are the great things that God has done that continue to affect us even now? So the feasts, like make much of the holidays. Serious. I know we're in the middle of August. We're in the beginning of August. But so we're kind of in a holiday dry spell right now. But but make much of it. Make much of the holidays when they come. Second, the Lord repeats for, I don't know, the third or fourth time overtly in the book of Exodus, the Sabbath command. Here he gets down to business. He says, keep the Sabbath even during the harvest season. Even when your life seems so busy, it doesn't make any sense to stop for a day. Remember, honor, keep the Sabbath holy. Let me say it plainly. If you want to cultivate an awareness of the Lord's presence in your household, for anyone in your influence, the most fundamental and transformative thing that you can do is set aside a day out of the week, to remember the Lord's grace to you. Uh, set aside a day unto the Lord. It's not merely for rest and recreation. Those are nice things to do within the context of remembering his grace. But friends, if the Sabbath is more important than the harvest, it's more important than um, you know a time where you have a big report coming up at work. Or where you need to, you know, get all your numbers in at a certain point. It's more important than kid activities. We're experiencing this. They creep up. They fill your life. It's more important. Make it holy. Set it aside for your family. Set it aside with a meal. Make a little ceremony out of it. It may seem like work to get into the practice of Sabbath, but then you realize it's grace. That's been given to you. The third thing that God lists as a routine of remembrance is offerings. The first fruits, the firstborn child, the firstborn of your flock, offer them to the Lord. Offer them before him. Offerings are a way to say, God, all that you give us, all that we have, I mean, is something that you've given us. It's a gift from you. As you receive things in your life, an offering is the way to remember his presence. Dedicate the first and best that you have to the Lord as a way to remember that he did it. 
Now, look, we have, we have a little routine here. We pass these nice fuzzy bags around. And they're shiny and blue and soft. And most of you give online, which is cool. That's fine. Give how, we'll, we'll receive your offerings however you want to give them. Um, but even still, it's going to pass through your hands. And I don't know, like, this is something that's become really important. All my kids know when we get the bag, they know to gather around because we're going to lay hands on the bag and thank God for all that he's given us and all that he's given to this church. And we're going to ask him to use it for his glory. So that's a little routine of remembrance that we have that says each week, the stuff that we have, the money that we have, it is a gift from him. I would encourage you to do the same. You know, you might not put anything in the bag, but let that bag remind you. Let it be a, a tangible reminder of God's presence, his, his gift, his mercy, his provision in your life. The last thing that God gives to Moses in Exodus 34 is an instruction at the very end. Write it down. Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you in Israel. What's he saying? He's saying, you're going to forget. <laughs> like, make a note, <laughs> sticky note, scroll that you carry with you. All right? Smartphone, write it down. There's something about writing it down and returning to it again and again. What is this calling us to do? We remember God's presence when we go back to the scriptures, back to the stories like the story of Joseph. And look at what he's done. And all of that leads to gratitude. Gratitude is the ultimate practice of remembering God's presence. Gratitude, I think, leads to joy. In fact, uh, my college pastor, Ben Patterson, writes, joy is what we experience when we're grateful for the grace that's been given to us. You want to experience joy? Be grateful for the grace given to us. Joy is what echoes back to us when we shout, thank you. That's joy. Here's Joseph's life oozing with joy. He's in the empty cistern. He's in the house of Potiphar. He's in the prison. And even in the depths, God is with him. So twice now in his life, Joseph's cloak has gotten him in trouble, right? I've made jokes about his coat. His brothers hated him for it, the fact that his dad gave it to him and not to them. Potiphar's wife kept his cloak as evidence to, to frame him for rape. The royal son sent into slavery, stripped of his cloak through false accusation. Perhaps that sounds familiar. Here is Jesus bloodied and mocked and then dressed in a purple robe to mock his claim to be a king. Later, we find him naked on the cross while the Roman soldiers gamble for what? His clothes, his cloak. Even in the depths of prison, Joseph was comforted by God's presence. Even in their sin, God mercifully reminded the Israelites that he would stay with them even though they deserved to be banished. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, his experience is very different. He faces the penalty that all the rest of us deserved. And he cries out the most horrible cry. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the absence of God's presence so that we could have the assurance of his presence. And that's the story we remember. We keep the feast to remember his presence with us. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we remember his presence with us. Let's pray. Father, perhaps some of my brothers and sisters in this room need to be reminded just so tangibly that you are with them. That you have, that you have suffered the penalty of their sin. Lord, whether, whether a, an unwise prank or a huge mistake at work or losing their temper and hurting people that they love. Lord, all of that shame was taken on the cross by you. And I pray, Lord, that you would then give us the gift. Remind us that you're with us always to the end of the age. And do it right here at the table. In Jesus' name, amen.